this Bible talk titled Model Hope is on 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13 to chapter 5 verse 11. It's the sixth sermon in our series in transit on 1 and 2 Thessalonians and it was given at Rabena on Sunday the 13th of November 2022. Well, there's nothing that makes us feel quite so uh, ignorant and uninformed as death does. Some of us think a lot about death. Some of us barely think about it at all. And whether we think about it a lot or not at all, the end result is the same. A lot of us are just largely ignorant. Because death raises so many questions for us. Why did he have to die? Why did she die so soon? Can he see us now? Is she okay? See, death raises all these questions for us, but death doesn't give us any answers, and so we often feel ignorant. We feel uninformed. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. See, the problem of death and grief was a first century problem too. And Paul didn't want the Thessalonians to be ignorant, to be uninformed. God didn't want those early Christians to be like those in their society around them, ignorant and uninformed. And God doesn't want us to be ignorant or uninformed either. Everyone might have an opinion about death, but when we stop and reflect a little bit, we realise that a lot of us are just ignorant. Grief is all around us. Some of us grieve silently for years and years and years. Some of us are much more demonstrative in our grief. Some of us are from a culture where we are supposed to be stoic in the face of grief. Others of us are from cultures where you are to weep and wail as loudly and publicly as possible. But I wonder if you notice in that verse how Christians are to grieve. Read verse 13 again. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. What we have before us is not a promise of no grief. That's not what's on view here. Death is always sad. Death interrupts. Death spoils. Death brings grief. Even Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. The promise that we have before us is a simple one, that we may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So my prayer is that by the time we are finished this morning uh, in this passage, we would not have no grief, but we would have a hope-filled grief. Because Christian grief is different grief. God can actually powerfully change our grief from grieving like the rest of the world does, grieving like those around us. But what is it that actually changes our grief? See verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, 
Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. It's such a simple little phrase. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. It is so simple and yet so profound. Because here is the heart of the gospel. Here is the good news of Jesus. These are just simple facts grounded in history. The fact that Jesus died. 2,000 years ago, he was executed on a Roman cross. A painful and horrible way for someone to die. But the Bible tells us not just that he died but why he died. That Jesus was willingly laying down his life for you and me. That as he hung there suffering on that cross, he was suffering what you and I ought to have suffered for our sin, for our rebellion against God. That Jesus was taking our place. That Jesus was dying our death. And not only that, Jesus rose again. Not just, you know, resuscitating and and stumbling out of that tomb, but a glorious resurrection to life again, to life eternal. The fact that Jesus had conquered death, that he now reigns victorious, that he's vindicated as God's king. He is the saviour of all who trust in him. So, friends, do you believe that? And I don't just mean, yeah, yeah, I, I believe something like that. I mean, do you really believe that? Verse 14. Because to really believe that, friends, this is what changes your grief. That simple little phrase, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, is an extraordinary thing that changes everything. Because the gospel changes everything. We saw that in the passage last week, didn't we? Uh, The one right before this one. If you're with us, what changes sex, what, cha- what takes the selfishness out of our sex lives, the gospel does. What changes our work, what takes ambition out of work, the gospel does. What changes grief, what takes hopelessness out of our grief, the gospel does. See, when we believe in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, everything changes And the way that we think about those who have fallen asleep changes too. Now, that little phrase, fallen asleep, was a common way in the first century to describe death. Uh, Just like us, we don't like often saying, he died in a really brutal way. We often soften it with euphemisms. We, We talk about someone passing away, that she's no longer with us. Softer ways of talking about death. There's nothing wrong with that. And so it was in the first century. They used this phrase, fallen asleep, because death looks a little bit like sleep, doesn't it? But those early Christians actually seized on that phrase and they made it their own. Because for the Christian, describing death as falling asleep isn't just because death looks like sleep, but because sleep assumes what? It assumes that you're going to wake up. Inbuilt into that common phrase was the very hope that the gospel gives. It's resurrection hope. And so Paul is clear that those who trust in Jesus, those who believe that that Jesus died and rose again, when they fall asleep, when they pass away, when they die, 
they will be brought to God through Jesus. Just as God did not abandon Jesus to death, so those who trust in him will be not abandoned either, yet will be raised in glory just as Jesus was. See, our resurrection hope relies on the fact that the resurrection of Jesus isn't just an event of history. It certainly is that. Rooted and grounded in history, it was witnessed by hundreds, but it's also the start of the resurrection age. That's the age that we are living in. It means that we can turn up to, to church and sing together as we do in one of our songs, Death will not hold us down for he is risen. Our Christian hope isn't just a, a vague kind of hope, wishful thinking that those who die are kind of floating with Jesus up in the clouds, wearing white wings and eating low-fat cream cheese. Yeah, Christian hope is a flesh and blood resurrection from the dead. And just as Jesus was resurrected, you know, demonstrably the same. Remember, he says to Thomas, touch my hands and my side. But at the same time, Jesus is gloriously transformed. He's laying down a pattern for us. He's laying down a pattern of death and then resurrection. We are going to be demonstrably the same and yet gloriously transformed. Why then should we have this kind of hope? We kind of want more information, don't we? We don't want to be ignorant. We don't want to be uninformed. What's actually, what's actually going to happen to us? Paul goes on to describe for us that some of this will happen and he continues to kind of ground our hope. Because remember, we ought to be the kind of people who grieve with hope. So take a look at verse 15. It says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now the imagery here is a little bit hard for us to pin down. It's, it's supposed to be a picture for us. But what is it a picture of? Well, notice the particular concern of the Thessalonians. They were worried for their friends. They were worried for their families, those who had trusted in Jesus and who had died, who had fallen asleep. That they were somehow going to miss out on the coming of the Lord Jesus. Now, that's not exactly our concern, is it? Though sometimes our concerns are a little bit similar. Our ignorant questions uh, from earlier remind us of those kind of concerns that we have. Where are they? Where are our friends and family who have died now? What's happening to them? What will happen to them? But notice what God has to say. As Paul writes this letter, he says, firstly, this is a word from the Lord. This is not just kind of Paul's rambling, his vague hopes. Often a lot of our ignorance comes from listening to people that we shouldn't be listening to. This is Jesus' word to us this morning. And secondly, notice that not only is it Jesus' words to us, but it actually tells us what Jesus will do. Jesus will come again. Throughout the centuries, this basic 
This is a basic foundational belief for all Christians, that Christ died, that Christ rose, that Christ will come again. And notice verse 16, how he will come. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Now, I don't think this is exactly how it's all going to happen, as if there's going to be three loud noises, you know, a cry, a loud voice, and a trumpet blast. This is all all Old Testament imagery for a majestic coming. It's going to be loud and it's going to be obvious. Here comes Jesus and he's coming with a summons. And what's the summons? End of verse 16, that the dead in Christ will rise first. The Thessalonian concern, you know, their friends and family had died. They're not going to miss out on anything because the dead in Christ will rise first. So we have a return, then a resurrection, and then a reunion, verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. What a a glorious, hope-filled reunion that is. That Jesus returns, that the dead are raised, that the Christians who are still alive will all join together to meet the Lord. Now, the cloud language throws some of us. It feels wispy and cloudy and floaty and kind of insubstantial, which is the complete opposite to what Paul means. Think of how the cloud language is used in the Bible. There's the cloud of the exodus when God is rescuing his people Israel. There's the cloud at Sinai as God gives the law to the people. There's the cloud that fills the tabernacle, the cloud that leads and guides in the wilderness, the cloud on the mountain at the transfiguration of Jesus, the clouds which cover Jesus as he, he ascends. See, clouds aren't supposed to be kind of wispy places with harp music. The clouds represent the very presence of God. And so, friends, one day we will all be in the clouds. We will all be in the very presence of God himself. As verse 17 ends, and so we will always be with the Lord. Friends, this is our eternal hope. Always with the Lord. Not because we deserve it, not because we are special, not because we are good people, but because Jesus died and rose again. Because the gospel changes everything. It changes us and it changes our eternal future when we put our trust in him. So hopefully, friends, now that we know all this, now that we're not ignorant about what lies before us, what do we do? What are we supposed to do with this knowledge that we have? Verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. See, this passage is supposed to be a comfort for us. This passage gives us hope. This passage helps us to grieve. But that's not the end point for Paul. The end point is this, encourage one another. So over coffee at morning tea time, encourage one another with these words. When you see a brother or a sister grieving, Encourage them with these words. When death comes, when death interrupts, when death intrudes, don't just send a hallmark card. Encourage people with these words. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring those who have fallen to so bring those who have fallen asleep. But friends, that's not all we believe, is it? Because we also know that one day the Lord Jesus will return. The coming day of the Lord should be a great comfort to us. But as soon as we start thinking about the return of the Lord Jesus, there is one common burning question, isn't it? When? When is the Lord going to return? When will Jesus come as he has promised? We always want to know when. And that's exactly where Paul starts, chapter 15, sorry, chapter 5, verse 1. Look with me. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Paul doesn't want to write to them about the times and the seasons and the days and the hour because no one knows the answer to that. Uh, Jesus says, you'll see on the screen behind me in Mark uh, chapter 13, Jesus says, but the coming, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So any time that you hear someone claiming to know the place or the date of Jesus' return, just ignore them. But don't ignore the day of the Lord. Paul gives us two images. He gives us the image of the thief and the image of the pregnant woman. Verse 2, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When a thief breaks in, they come silently. They come unexpectedly. And yet, verse 3, people are going to be saying there is peace and security. People around us are going to be saying everything's fine. He's not going to come. And then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Pregnancy ends in labour. Suddenly the end of a pregnancy comes and it comes quickly and as I've seen with my own eyes, it comes very painfully. You can't escape it. You can't avoid it. So put those two metaphors together to get a picture of the return of the Lord Jesus. Some people are going to be obsessed with dates and times. Others are going to be saying there is peace and security, everything's fine. But this day is going to come like a thief in the night, suddenly and unexpectedly. And this day will come like labour pains, painfully and unavoidably and certainly. And so with all that in mind, how then should we return, uh, prepare for the return of the Lord Jesus? We'll have a look again at the passage before you. Verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So the way we're supposed to respond to the coming return of the Lord Jesus is grounded in our identity. Who we are makes all the difference. So who are we? If you're someone who trusts in Jesus, then you are children of light. You are children of the day. And so when the thief comes, you're not supposed to be surprised. 
picture of a thief, dressed in black, you know, balaclava over his head, coming to your place in the middle of the night. The thief opens the window, climbs in, turns around, and all the lights are on. And there you are, completely unsurprised by his arrival. You see the difference it makes knowing what's going to happen. It's the same with the coming day of the Lord. We are not in darkness. We know it's coming. And so we live, verse 6, not asleep as others do, but awake and sober. Jesus is calling us to be the sober ones, the awake ones, alert to what's going on, alert to the times in which we live, waiting and watchful. That's what life looks like for those who are in the light, children of, of, the, of the day, those who are awake and alert. Meanwhile, the rest of the world belong to the night. They are asleep, they are drunk, and they are going to miss all of the action. One day Jesus will return to judge the world in righteousness. We know this because God resurrected him from the dead. And when the Lord Jesus returns, he's not going to come back as a meek and mild teacher in dusty Palestine. He's going to return as God's king, the ruler over all, and he's going to return in judgment. What's that day going to look like? Let me remind you again of Zephaniah, the first reading that Robert read for us this morning. Again, the words will be on the screen behind me uh, from Zephaniah chapter 1. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. It's a day of distress and ruin and devastation. It will be complete and it will be awful. It's confronting when we see a holy God dealing with the problem of sin. Our sin, our rebellion against God isn't something that is easy for God to do away with. It's not a plaything. It is serious and it deserves a serious response. And yet as we think in horror about the coming day of the Lord, have a look at how the passage ends. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, where Paul says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. How on earth can that be? How can Paul say this great and awful day of the Lord is coming when the Lord Jesus will return and judge the earth? And at the same time, he's saying, encourage one another and build each other up. Well, friends, we sing it in one of our songs. In Christ alone we sing, on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The wrath that is poured out on Jesus at his death, the anger that God spends on him, 
is that wrath that Zephaniah was talking about. You know, as the sky blackens over the cross of Jesus, we ought to remember it's the Zephaniah kind of blackness. So as this day of the Lord looms over us, how should we live? Should we be terrified and concerned and afraid? Verse 8. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has destined us not, has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up. The day of the Lord is coming. That is certain. Jesus is coming in judgment. But we're not destined for wrath. We're not destined for the horror of Zephaniah 1. Why? Because in his mercy, in his grace, even though we don't deserve it, we've been given salvation. We've been rescued from God's wrath and judgment. We have been given forgiveness. And so whether we are awake alive at the coming of the Lord Jesus, or if we are asleep in death when he returns, we can have a rock-solid confidence that if we are trusting in him, we will live with him. Therefore, friends, encourage one another and build each other up. Let's encourage each other to live as children of the light, to live as children of that day. Let's encourage each other to be awake and to be sober, to live expectantly, to live all out for Jesus. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together about all this. Our great God, as we think about death, as we think about the coming of the Lord Jesus, often we feel a little bit confused, we feel a little bit unsure, we feel a bit ignorant and uninformed. And so we thank you that you have informed us this morning through this letter of 1 Thessalonians. Help us not to grieve as others do, those who grieve with no hope. Keep reminding us of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the certain hope that we have that those who trust in the Lord Jesus who die will be raised with him. Father, we pray that you would fit us for the day that the Lord Jesus returns. We know that Jesus will return in judgment. We know that that will be for some a terrifying day. But we give you great thanks that because you have saved us, we are not destined for that wrath. But that we can celebrate the fact that Jesus will return one day for us. Help us to live in the light of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Help us to be children of the light, children of the day. Help us to be awake and sober 
living expectantly, waiting for the return of Jesus, our King. Father, we pray that we wouldn't just keep this to ourselves, but that we would take seriously your command to encourage one another and build up each other as we consider these things together. We pray all this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.